The first reading is from the book of Revelations, chapter 4, the first 11 verses. At this point, I had another vision and saw an open door in heaven. And the voice that sounded like a trumpet, which I heard speaking to me before, said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. At once the spirit took control of me. There in heaven was a throne with someone sitting on it. His face gleamed like such precious stones as jasper and carnelian. And all round the throne, there was a rainbow, the color of an emerald. In a circle round the throne were 24 other thrones on which were seated 24 elders dressed in white and wearing crowns of gold. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lighted torches were burning, which are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. Surrounding the throne on each of its sides were four living creatures covered with eyes in front and behind. The first one looked like a lion. The second looked like a bull. The third had a face like a man's face. And the fourth looked like an eagle in flight. Each one of the four living creatures had six wings and they were covered with eyes inside and out. Day and night, they never stopped singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. The four living creatures sing songs of glory and honor and thanks to the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. When they do so, the 24 elders fall down before the one who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They throw their crowns down in front of the throne and say, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive great glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will, they were given existence and life. Now from Revelation chapter 7, 9 to 17. Chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there was an enormous crowd no one could count all the people. They were from every race, tribe, nation, and language. And they stood in front of the throne and of the lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. They called out in a loud voice, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the lamb. All the angels stood round the throne, the elders and the four living creatures. Then they threw themselves 
face downward in front of the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honour, power and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. One of the elders asked me, who are these people dressed in white robes and where do they come from? I don't know, sir. You do, I answered. He said to me, these are the people who have come safely through the terrible persecution. They have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the lamb. That is why they stand before God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will protect them with his presence. Never again will they hunger or thirst. Neither sun nor any scorching heat will burn them because the lamb who is in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of life-giving water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You can tell a lot about a kingdom by the throne and by the throne room and who's in the throne room, not just on the throne, like uh, the throne in Game of Thrones, a throne made of swords. Uh, to remind anyone who sits on it, their rule is secured by the sword and will be ended by one probably. A Game of Thrones is a hyper-violent show based on a series of books that are a deep dive and a critique of the violence at the heart of modern empires. Uh, it's a bit like the current sensation Squid Game, another hyper-violent Netflix series aiming to expose and critique the violence at the heart of capitalism, where the haves capitalise on the have-nots in the show. The super wealthy sit on thrones, these couches watching people indebted by the system they live in, uh, give their lives in this series of increasingly violent games, hoping to win their financial freedom. Uh, the catch as people in our world watch these shows is that we're so enmeshed in the system the shows critique that we miss the critique and we just enjoy and glory in the violence and the entertainment. Instead of being shocked and exposed, we find ourselves sitting in this same chair, sitting in our own little thrones, uh, part of the system lapping up the entertainment it uses to keep us from revolution. Uh, empires built on immersive violence as entertainment aren't that new. In fact, this was part and parcel of the Roman Empire around the time that Revelation was written. The person occupying the throne in Rome embodied the worst of the political and economic realities of Game of Thrones and Squid Games, uh, would sit in a chair in, an, in a stadium and give the thumbs up or thumbs down about who would live or who would die amidst beastly spectacles, where if you're in the crowd uh, enjoying the show, it's hard to escape and critique the nature of that empire. The throne of Rome needed to be seen from a different angle. And people needed a different throne dominating their view of how to live in the world. And that's what this book, Revelation, does. As John's vision zooms in on the throne in heaven. There's some imagery that carries over in this scene. Seven lamps are blazing, seven lamps that are perhaps sitting on seven lampstands. Now, these lamps are the spirit of God, we're told, blazing, shining light on the throne and thunder and lightning is rolling out. And then you get these 24 elders around the throne and literally 
their 24 Presbyterians. So I'll leave you sitting with that for a minute, but we'll see more of these elders later. Uh, we zoom out from these to four living creatures who are covered with eyes in the front and in the back. Uh, one's like a lion, the next like an ox, the third has a face like a man, and the last was like a flying eagle. Now, these four creatures, they sound weird, and they are weird, but we've actually met them before in the Bible. They were in the heavenly throne room in Ezekiel, these four living creatures. Now, there are some little differences in the way John sees and describes them to the way Ezekiel does, uh, but the, in both scenes, there are these heavenly winged creatures that are this mix of human and beast, the same animals uh, in the mix, human, lion, ox, and eagle. Uh, in Revelation, though, these creatures have six wings, while in Ezekiel, they have four. And we'll get onto that in a moment, because the identity of these heavenly creatures is something we actually get told in Ezekiel. We get their names. These weird lion, man, cow, eagles, they are cherubs. Uh, cherubim is the Hebrew plural for cherubs. And you might picture a cherub like this, the little sweet creature who shoots you and makes you fall in love. But in the Bible, the cherubim look more like this. These weird winged beast creatures, these heavenly beings that exist to serve and worship Israel's God. Now, this imagery, it doesn't come from a vacuum. The prophets are actually making a point here by describing these heavenly beings in this way, as this kind of beastly winged thing. Uh, it's not that cherubim actually look like this. We don't even know if they have bodies. They're heavenly spiritual beings. But the prophets give us a visual commentary drawing on the thought world and the gods of the nations around Israel to make a point that worshipping lesser spiritual beings in the heavenly court, those from God's divine court, it makes no sense when it's actually God who's on the throne and these creatures worship him. So if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, the nations around Israel worshipped images of beastly gods, winged beasts, serpents, dragons, weird hybrid animals like this Babylonian picture, and their stories were violent and bloody, and that shaped life in those kingdoms. And the kings of these nations were seen as supported by these beastly gods as they offered worship to these beastly gods who triumphed tooth and claw over other beastly gods. We saw a couple of weeks ago how Daniel makes the connection clear. You've even got the same animals in his description of the fall of Nebuchadnezzar as Nebuchadnezzar goes wild and beastly. He goes off into the wilderness looking like their beast gods, but also looking like the cherubim. These divine figures Babylon was tempted to worship in the place of the Almighty. And so the cherubim, as we see them in the Old Testament prophets, are an amalgam of these beast gods from the nations. They're not superior beings who are worthy of worship, but servants of Israel's God, so that worshipping them, whether you're an Israelite or in the nations, is a big mistake. Isaiah does the same thing. He's got this vision of the heavenly court, but he has some six-winged critters, a bit like John in Revelation, are the seraphim. John's vision brings the cherubim and the seraphim together in the throne room, and we might picture cherubs as little angels with wings, but seraphim, the word means both burning, and so it's often been thought of as burning ones, but it also means snake. And there's a good case to make from the Old Testament and the nations around it and imagery from the nations around it that seraphim are actually flying fire serpents. There you go. So picture the heavenly realm, not with a cute angel with wings and a bow and arrow, 
but those beastly things and not with glowing, shining, radiant figures, but flying fire serpents. And you're getting into the vision that John's presenting for us. Now, the word cobra, it's this kind of idea of cobras who spit burning venom. And these were popular religious images in Egypt. These winged serpents were a cosmic symbol of divine authority. The pharaohs even had them on their crowns at the top of those gold things you see on their sarcophagus, these flying fire serpents. And so Isaiah sees these objects of worship in Egypt actually giving worship to Israel's God, Ezekiel and Isaiah, and then Revelation picture these beastly heavenly creatures, not as objects of worship, but as worshippers of the Almighty who sing praise to him. The animating forces behind these nations, the, the spiritual beings they might be tempted to worship through their idolatry, uh, around the throne of God singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's meant to fundamentally undermine any desire Israel has to worship these gods, or the church in the first century has to worship gods like them, beastly gods and their beastly kingdoms. John's vision pulls together these threads to show the position that God occupies in the heavens as the absolute ruler over the so-called gods of the nations. But there's more than that going on. Because the cherubim in particular, they had a job to do in the Old Testament story. They're divine gatekeepers. They keep sinful people out of God's presence. When humanity gets exiled from God's presence in Eden, it's cherubim there guarding the way back. When Israel operates as God's priestly kingdom, carrying God's presence with them in the tabernacle, cherubim symbolically separates people from God's presence in the Holy of Holies, in the temple and in the tabernacle. And that's the curtain that tears when Jesus dies. There are cherubim embroidered on that as a picture of the barrier between us and the heavens that we cannot approach because we're not holy enough. The cherubim guard this barrier between God's holiness, his presence and the people. And so part of the curtain tearing is because this barrier is now broken and we're seeing the fruits of that in Revelation. It's a picture not just of that barrier being broken and us having access to God, but also of God leaving the temple. We'll see that a bit more in just a little while. Our statues of cherubim framed the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, which is a picture of God's heavenly throne. Uh, they're there in the throne room, operating to worship God, to protect God from unholy presences, to protect us from God's holiness because we're not holy enough to approach the throne. Uh, only a priest could go into this room and only once a year. This was a place that was a reminder that God is holy, 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 and that we are not. We'll come back to the cherubim in a little while, but here in Revelation, it's just worth noting, they're not excluding people from God's presence anymore. And we're not meant to gaze at these critters, though this is not the focus of this passage, because we're told their gaze is fixed on someone else. We might be tempted by all this weird descriptive language to keep our eyes on the weird heavenly beings and figure out what's going on and what they mean for us. And we might forget that John tells us that they're looking at someone. And we might be tempted to do this, especially if they represent some sort of powers or rulers, spiritual or otherwise, the animating forces of our world, of the kingdoms of the world, uh, when we think those kingdoms might impact us. We might want to understand that impact, but uh, where Ezekiel's vision in chapter one ends with the camera pointed at this glorious figure, John opens with that vision, with our gaze firmly on the throne, the throne in heaven and the one sitting on it. 
who's presented just like he is in Ezekiel, surrounded by rainbows and light and glory. That's what's meant to draw our gaze. The light is shining on and shining from this one on the throne. And then the lens in John's vision, it zooms out on another miracle, which is Presbyterians moving their bodies in worship. When the cherubim and seraphim worship the one on the throne, these 24 elders, they join in. Now there's lots of debate about who these elders are, what they represent, whether they're spiritual beings or part of God's divine council that gets mentioned in the Old Testament a bit, or whether they're glorified humans ruling with God. But what we see is these creatures have crowns and as they worship, they lay them down in recognition of God's rule as the most high. They say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, I think that these elders are probably also meant to be understood as spiritual beings, the powers and principalities of the Old Testament, pictures uh, of the rulers over the nations who are coming and laying their crowns before the king, before Jesus, who now rules over them as the king of kings and lord of lords. And I recognise how weird and otherworldly this all is, especially for us in our time and place. But remember, this is a letter written to real churches in the first century. And this sort of vision of the cosmos and these cosmic forces at work, this was bread and butter for them. We've lost a bit of that vision in the modern world. Uh, But it was especially a real thing in the Roman Empire where the emperor was claiming his ancestors had ascended to the heavens to rule from there within a council of gods. And there's an Old Testament background here too, an Old Testament thought world, and one that kind of gives some, shed some light on the identity of the elders. So Isaiah the prophet anticipated a day of the Lord when judgment would be dished out on the earth, not just on people, but on any powers and principalities, those beastly nations and their spiritual representatives who'd stolen Israel's hearts through false worship. So Isaiah anticipates this day when God will come in judgment laying waste on the earth and punishing the cooperating rebels on earth and in heaven, the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. There's this enmeshment going on. And on that day, we're told the heavenly bodies, and that's how ancient people viewed the moon and the sun and the stars, part of the heavenly realm, these spiritual beings, the heavens will be dismayed and ashamed at this rebellion. And in this day, the Lord will reign from his throne which remember was not just in the heavenly realm, but in the temple in Jerusalem on the ark. I say he'll reign in this kind of overlap of heaven and earth in Jerusalem and in heaven. And he'll reign before these elders who I think are the spiritual beings, the powers that are submitting to him rather than rebelling against him. Now it could be both human and divine. There's this idea that humans uh, who are raised with Christ will take their seats in that council. That's kind of biblical image that will come later in John's vision. But again, we could get caught up on who these elders are and forget who these elders are looking at and what should be our focus as we read these words. Not the weird beasties or the heavenly dancing Presbyterians and not in this next bit, the things in the hands of the people on the throne, the, the scrolls and the seals, rather than the people on the throne. Our focus is meant to be on them. We might be more worried about the scary stuff the picture of what's unraveled when the scrolls are opened and the seals are broken. And we might be more worried about that stuff than we are confident in the rule of the one on the throne. But John's lens wants to keep drawing our attention to him. 
And so he tells us he sees the lamb looking as, it, as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. And all these other beings are circled around the lamb, looking inwards and offering praise and worship in response, recognizing the lamb who was slain as the one who has authority, the one who has these horns and eyes and who sends out the spirit of God into the earth. This is God's king at work, ending the exile, sending God's spirit into the earth, his life-giving glorious presence going out into the world to bring people home. And so the lamb then takes a scroll from the one on the throne. So we're in chapter five now, and you can click open your Bible and keep up because we're going to move through this stuff pretty quickly. We might want to, as we see this thing, we want to to focus in on the scroll. But here these heavenly creatures make us look again at Jesus while also serving God before the throne, holding on to the prayers of God's people, bringing the people of God into the presence of God. And it's not the contents of the scroll they want to draw our attention to straight away, but the worthiness of the lamb who can open the scroll and open its seals, the worthiness of the lamb who was slain, who is worthy because he was slain. He's worthy because by his blood, he purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. All these people who used to worship other gods, other powers and principalities through the victory of the lamb are brought in and made one kingdom under one king, made priests of that king. There's this intersection between religion and politics again, priests who will reign on the earth, bringing God's presence on the earth, representing Jesus and his rule as he reigns in the heavens. The king of kings who rules over the powers and principalities has brought people from all sorts of other kingdoms into his kingdom of priests. And then the the lens zooms out again, the heavenly host expands, we get a hundred million angels, if my maths is right, joining in the song. 10,000 times 10,000, praising the Lamb. Imagine the noise, praising the Lamb, crying out that He is worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be honoured and glorified and praised in song. And then we get a super wide shot, and each transition of the lens is expanding, but the Lamb is still at the centre. The throne is still at the centre. It expands to include more people and creatures, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all of them praising and worshipping the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne. And then finally, we'll get people. But whatever you make of the next bit in chapter 6, as the scrolls get opened, we are meant to know that God and the slain Lamb are in control but they are ruling over what comes next. So when the scroll is opened and the four horsemen of the apocalypse trot out in Revelation 6, they're not sinister figures opposed to God. They're not opponents who we are to watch out for. They're the ones who are bringing God's judgment. They're the ones bringing the day of the Lord anticipated by the prophets. And even earlier, they're anticipated by the law. All the plagues and the pestilence and the destruction the horsemen bring are the punishments promised by God for people who turn their backs on him and worship false gods, even right back in Leviticus. The curses in Leviticus 26 for disobedience, for worshipping the wrong God, are being borne out by these four horsemen. The first rider brings the sword, turning people against each other, leaving us playing the game of thrones, dominating each other to get what we want, like we're all caught up in a squid game. The second horseman, the black horse, is a picture of economic 
destruction, inflation, the land working against people, scarcity. That's in both. And then the pale horse, death and Hades, bringing death through attacks from wild beasts. This is where beastly worship leads. Uh, death through the sword and wars and plagues and pestilence. There's a reminder of Egypt here too, and the plagues that are a picture of God's judgment on the world. But it's a picture of judgment too in terms of exile from Eden, from a land that nourishes life to a nature and environment turned against us in judgment. Curse rather than blessing. Curse for breaking relationship with God. This is Jesus bringing the day of the Lord promised by the prophets as these scrolls are open. And this lines up with Jesus proclaiming judgment on Jerusalem as he approaches the cross. As he promises the temple will be destroyed and God's kingdom removed from their leaders and given to others. Uh, there's a picture that John's pulling from Leviticus and Isaiah and Ezekiel. Uh, in Ezekiel, when ex Israel experiences this exile, this day of the Lord, when the sword is unleashed, these figures turn up with a deadly weapon to bring this destruction. And in that moment, Ezekiel set the scene with the heavenly court and the cherubim in chapter one. In that moment, when this judgment comes, the cherubim who've been the gatekeepers of God's glorious presence in the world, they take off. They move from the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the temple and God sends in this man with a riding kit, a man who turns up with the sword guys to mark out his people, mark out the ones who are faithful to be spared, like at the Passover, those who are spared because the blood of the lamb was on their doors. The, the judgment is pouring out, but the people marked by God as his will be saved. It's like the Passover, only here it's happening in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has become Egypt. I mean, this is also imagery we see and we will see in Revelation with that, all that weird stuff about marks, the mark of the beast or the mark of the lamb. And once that moment of judgment is carried out in Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel pictures God and his gatekeepers, the cherubim, not going back to the Holy of Holies and starting again, but taking off from the temple departing. Uh, exile in the Old Testament was the beginning of God's judgment on religious and political Israel for not being his priestly kingdom, but it's a judgment finally sealed for them when its leaders killed Jesus and that curtain tears. And any hope of God coming back to rule from that throne in Jerusalem is lost. John's saying exile in Babylon for Israel is just a shadow of the exile that comes when you kill God's lamb, which doesn't just come on Israel, but on all the nations and the powers and principalities. So, look, I know this is a lot, and we've kind of rushed through this material, so let's just take stock. In the Old Testament, the cherubim and the seraphim are these heavenly beings, like the elders, the powers and principalities. They're these divine, supernatural figures in the throne room of God. But the Bible pictures them as beastly figures who are worshipped by the nations and condemns Israel in particular for joining the nations in worshipping beastly gods rather than the God they serve, who is the Lord of hosts. These divine creatures, they're the gatekeepers of God's presence. They keep people out, out of Eden, out of the Holy of Holies. And when exile happens, when judgment comes on Israel, they take off with God. There's nothing to guard anymore because God is not in the Holy of Holies. And now in the New Testament, John's using all this same imagery to say the same judgment that came on Israel in the Old Testament is coming on the world. The, the judgment the prophets anticipate 
is about to come on Jerusalem and the nations. Jesus' victory over the powers and principalities means the nations and the spiritual realm, everybody, all creatures, are now called to worship Jesus as king. And Jesus is there as the slain lamb, inviting people to come out of those nations and their false worship, out of being marked by the beast and marked for death, to be marked by him so that they can be saved from God's judgment, just as Israel was in the Exodus, brought into a kingdom as a kingdom of priests. Because what happens in Revelation, what John pictures as these seals are broken and judgment is unleashed, when the slain lamb comes as judge, the consequences, this bit in Isaiah is fulfilled, all the kings and the princes, their mighty armies and the powerful economies, all the stuff that sustains these empires, everyone not marked for life faces the terrifying prospect of realizing they've stood against God and his king. And so they flee and it's terrible. They don't want to see God's face or feel his wrath. In Revelation, this judgment, this Passover, it doesn't just fall on Israel. It's coming for all people not marked by the lamb. All people who are marked by the lamb will be saved. And so you've got this choice that Revelation's been presenting from the beginning. You've got the choice between exile from God's presence, exile that leads to curse and death, or a new exodus to be made a kingdom of priests. You've got to choose between the beast or the beauty. And it's all about whether you're going to join in the chorus of heaven and worship the lamb. This is the lens we're given, the, the lens that's often on the horses and the horsemen and the punishments and the plagues and trying to figure out where we are in history rather than trying to look at the one who's unleashing this judgment and how we should respond. And then the lens points at people to make the choice clear. Suddenly the cherubim aren't keeping people away from God's glory. People are there joining in their song. First, the 144,000. Now, lots have been said about this. Lots of people have been trying to guess what's going on who the 144,000 are. Uh, if you're a Jehovah's Witness visiting this morning, you'll have a particular idea about that, that it's all the people ever who will be saved and it's very literal. But I think it's a picture of restored Israel. You get this picture of completeness, twelve lots of 12,000, this fullness. It's not a literal number that has to be filled up, but multitude, multiples of 12 is this picture of completeness and restoration. This isn't all the people who are saved ever. It's not those of us who are Gentiles, but it's Jewish people marked by the Lamb who receive Israel's Messiah as their king. And you don't need to feel excluded by this because we come next, those of us who are not Jewish. Now, this is all the bad stuff in the Old Testament coming untrue, the exile of Israel, the destruction of a bunch of the tribes, and the exile of the nations and all of us from Eden in the beginning. And those moments in the story where the nations get handed over to other powers in the heavenly room. All of that is coming undone. Our exclusion from Eden, from life with God, the slain lamb is restoring us, making us his again, freeing us to be his image-bearing priestly people again, his representatives. So suddenly we too are invited to be part of God's glorious human people again part of this great multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the Lamb, calling out, salvation belongs to our God. Not just the God of Israel, not some God removed from us, but our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, we sometimes don't see how big a deal this is 
in the story of the Bible that we, the nations, are brought in and God becomes our God. But it is a big deal. And we are invited to look at the throne and join the chorus of heaven, worshipping God as one. Not just as one with all tribes and tongues and nations, Gentiles and Jew together, but as one with all creatures and the heavens and all of these heavenly beings, joining in worship of our God. And this great multitude is the people saved by the blood of the Lamb. Like in the Passover, we've been washed and cleansed and glorified because we've been marked as his, so that judgment doesn't fall on us. And we are invited to join in, to be saved by the Lamb, to be his people, to live in his kingdom, to no longer be separated from God by swords and judgment and fiery snake serpents and cherubim, but to be brought into the presence of God, into the place once sealed off and kept from us because we were not holy enough, through the gateway of Eden, through the temple curtain, because our exile from God is over. And we are free then to enjoy blessing, covenant blessing, rather than the curse that comes with false worship. We're being led by the lamb who's at the centre of the throne, led like sheep being led by a shepherd, who will lead us to springs of living water as God wipes away every tear from our eyes. This is a picture of the new creation, the new Eden, pictured at the end of the book. John sees that everything the Old Testament anticipates in terms of exile from God and judgment and destruction, it's all restored through God's king in this new Passover. No longer separated from God's presence, living in a world, a restored creation centred on the land. And he invites us to share this vision and to choose the throne we serve. See, we mightn't have beastly gods. We mightn't even think of ourselves in the modern world as worshipping spiritual powers and principalities, these animating forces that shaped the kingdoms around Israel to be particularly beastly. We don't have, as Westerners, a category for these sorts of non-God beings in the heavens. We picture cherubim as little angels and seraphim as who knows what. They're in our Christmas carols, but you're not picturing flying fiery serpents at that point, are you? We mightn't have a tyrant on the throne like Nero, a, a beastly ruler who killed his own mother to hold on to his throne, who just randomly killed citizens in the street for fun, who put on these spectacles of blood and gore and who commanded his citizens of his empire to worship him and his ascended fellow emperors, his ancestors. But we do face the same temptations the people living in his regime faced. The temptation to be pulled to beastly worship by a really powerful cult around us. In the first century, it was the imperial cult. Now it's the cult of entertainment and capitalism and the things that keep us playing our part in the system that makes the rich get richer and the poor get into debt. So there's a significant pressure in the world this book was written to that didn't just come from the power of the sword. And my old college principal, Bruce Winter, he wrote a book about how pressure from the Roman imperial cult was profound for early Christians. We saw that in that letter between Pliny and Trajan a few weeks ago, but it wasn't just the sword, the threat of death doing this. It was cultural. The beastly Roman empire had a beastly violence at its heart. Emperor worship was propped up by bloody gladiatorial battles and beast fights and feasts where people behaved like animals. 
indulging in their passions without consequences, at empire temples. And this was part of the lure. Beastliness was embedded into the religion and the politics and the economy and the entertainment and the culture, the imagery that formed the imagination of the people. So I want to ask you this morning, what thrones are shaping your imagination? What are you fixated by that is shaping your participation in the world? It's probably for most of you not Game of Thrones, but it's almost certainly for all of us the world it tried to unveil. The world of violence and dominion where might makes right and violence solves our problems, even if we're removed from it and it's just the threat of violence guaranteeing a particular sort of social order. A world where entertainment is embedded in the same system that it tries to critique. So we're never sure if we're escaping the system or escaping to it as we have our imaginations formed. So these systems are so compelling. Just like Rome's culture of games and feasts that even critiques of the system become part of the system, part of the things that feed our hearts and our imaginations, but also end up making the people making the critique stacks of money, winning them success in the same system they're critiquing. It's a vicious, beastly cycle. And the solution, the solution offered by Revelation is not more escapism into beastly throne rooms or onto your couch where you enjoy uh, joining in and glorifying in the violence that's at the heart of these empires, cultivating desires that pull you away from Jesus. The solution is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to worship him as king, to find ourselves deeply embedded in his story, having our view of the world shaped by that gaze. The challenge is to fill our eyes and our vision with the throne room that we see in Revelation and the king we see on the throne. Now, this doesn't mean not watching super violent shows or the art or the entertainment from the world. It might. But it should prime us at least to see the critiques when they're there and to have them push us towards new ways of living rather than having us re reveling in violence and misery. We should be so moved to want more of God's kingdom to come when we're confronted with the stark reality of the kingdoms of this world. We can't be watching the world through the lens that it provides because we have this new lens a lens that should prevent us getting caught up in beastly regimes through bread and circuses. But this means finding other things, the Bible, art, people who live in ways led by the Spirit, who will help you centre your life on God and the slain lamb, finding ways to feast on them. One way I do this and that we do this as a family is with the Bible Project. They're a YouTube channel. Their videos are fantastic. They love the big story of the Bible and helping us see it unfold in different ways at different times. And our kids really enjoy watching their videos with us. And we want them to see how every story in the Bible leads the slain lamb on the throne. They've also got a podcast that goes into more depth and it sometimes even moves me to tears as it helps me find new ways to see the glory of Jesus in the story of the Bible and its wonderful intricacy. They have fantastic content on Revelation as well. If you want to dig deeper. There's also a podcast called The Naked Bible that gives me fresh eyes as I'm engaging with God's Word. It's really helpful for me. I don't know if it'll be helpful for you, but we need to find some things that are schooling our eyes and our hearts so that we see Jesus. It's full of rich stuff too on Revelation. It's going at a lot slower pace than we are, so you can dip into that. But we also do this together as we meet together, not just as we hear from God's Word, but as we sing, 
We train our hearts as we sing like those creatures in the throne room, singing words that join in the chorus of heaven and doing that together. That shapes our heart. That is meant to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're going to sing this song in a moment, but all the songs we sing are on a Spotify playlist so that you can soak in them, sing them in the shower, do whatever it takes, sing them in the car, do whatever it takes to focus on the Lamb. And of course, we're about to share in the Feast of the Lamb together a picture of the new Passover, something that marks us out as Jesus' priestly kingdom. Will you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, it's so hard to know what's real. There are so many visions of life out there competing for our hearts, and we can get so caught up in those visions and in the, the thrones they offer and in the delights they offer that we end up not really knowing what's real. And so, so much of what we've read from today in Revelation is confronting and weird and beyond our comprehension. But we pray that we might keep our eyes focused where the lens in Revelation is focused, on you and on the slain lamb at the centre of the throne, that we might, by seeing the glory of Jesus unveiled, be so transfixed by him and the beauty of your kingdom that we fall before you in worship, that we join in the chorus of heaven, all those spiritual beings, all creatures, great and small, and all the people redeemed through history by the blood of the Lamb. And so we pray that in worshipping you, you might transform us by your spirit so that we become your kingdom and priests in your world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.